Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Premier League All Access Podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. Stay ahead of all the big games in the best league in the world, the Premier League. With the latest odds, form guides, expert opinions and more, the fans are the players at Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at ladbrooks.com, 18 plus, be gambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. Hello, it's the Game Day podcast. Time to review the weekend's Premier League action in the company of Talk Sports football correspondent Alex Crookies here. Hello. Hello. And Talk Sports best friend, the assistant editor of The Mirror, the very lively Darren Lewis. Hello. Hello. Oh, you sound a bit interesting. You're still in Manchester after the Manchester derby. You sound a little bit Dalek-y, but we'll get through it because we want to have you here. Uh, what a weekend. North London trash, Arsenal uh, thrashing Tottenham Hotspur. Um, Slick City, Connor comes to Chelsea's rescue. And Wolves say, go large. From TalkSport, this is the Game Day Podcast. Hello, guys. I uh, hope all is well. Top stories from the weekend. Harlem becomes the first player in Premier League history to score three consecutive Premier League home hat-tricks. Foden gets his first treble. Arsenal remain top of the pile. Liverpool concede first in a Premier League game against the ninth time in 11 matches. Wolves sack their manager. And the Real Madrid president says that the Super League will save football. Which of those is the biggest story of the week, Crook? Cool. Well, in terms of ramifications for the future of the game, probably the last one. Um, but obviously, um, Haaland setting another record he has filled plenty of column inches. And you do wonder how many more hat-tricks he might get between now and the end of the season. Could he get 10 hat-tricks in the Premier League this season? We talked about how many goals he might score. Could he actually get 10 trebles? I wouldn't rule it out. Yeah, quite possibly. I mean, he's been... Incredibly consistent. I think I mentioned to you over the course of the uh, first few weeks of the season that his XG was at a rate where he could end up scoring 55 goals this season. And then I'd said, he's not going to get 55 goals. So we're going to do a 55-goal tracker, right? Okay, so each week we're going to see how close he is to getting 55 goals. He's got 17 goals in all competitions, 14 in the league. 14 in the league. That's amazing, right? Eight games, right? 14, eight games. Okay, so here we go. I'm getting my calculator. As we're doing this, I'm getting my calculator. You can see me, right? I'm getting. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see me. I'm getting my calculator out. Here we go. This is the Harland 55 calculator. I'm, I'm disappointed you've not got one of the massive desk calculators. I struck you as someone who would definitely own one of those. Okay. But you just do it on your phone, which is a bit boring. Yeah, sorry. I apologize for that. So it's 30 games left, yeah? Okay, so we're on four at the moment. Another 52.5 goals. So, hold on. <laughs> just to clarify. 65 goals. Just then. to clarify. <laughs> at the moment, we're on for 66 and a half goals. Okay, so we're doing quite well on the 55-goal tracker. Uh, right, now that can't be right. I'm sure my math must... I must have messed that up. I, I need a big desk calculator. I, I've, done, I've done the maths again. I've done the maths again. And it's still 66.5 goals. <laughs> I can't make it work in any other way. It is just going to be a hell of a lot of goals, isn't it? I mean, wow, this guy is going to be amazing. Um, uh, what is your big story from the weekend, Darren? Mine would definitely have to be Haaland. I, I think that we are seeing one of the great players in world football right now. At I, I wouldn't say at his peak. He's nowhere near his peak. He's 22 years of age. And I, I think we're at the stage now, we, we get it every so often in, in football, where, sorry, in sport, where a phenomenon arrives. Whether I've said this before, you know, about Haaland, you know, when in, you like your horse racing, Crook, Frankel, when he arrived and nobody could beat him and he reeled off win after win after win for older people like me, Mike Tyson, when he first arrived. 
and he was ripping people apart. You know, Roger Federer when he was unbeatable, Steve Davis in snooker when he was invincible. This guy is invincible. I can't give you enough superlatives about the brilliance of Erling Haaland. I, I was thinking last night, would it be too much to compare him to R9, the OG Ronaldo? Because when he gets the ball and he is homed in on goal, he is unstoppable. You ally that to his movement, his poise, his composure. It doesn't matter what's going on around him. If he is on, t- if he is within range, he can score. Honestly, it, it, I was at the game yesterday. That's why my sound is so bad, and I'm doing it from the hotel. And we're joking all about that. But the real serious aspect of this is, it's getting to the stage where people want to say, "I saw him play." That's how good he is. And when he scored that second goal where uh, De Bruyne crossed from the right-hand side and you thought the ball was going into touch, you thought he couldn't possibly reach it and he was like, go, go, gadget legs. And he extended and he managed to get it in at the back post. And there wasn't necessarily a cheer from the City fans. It was a gasp in the Etihad Stadium of disbelief because for all the hype that surrounded Haaland, he really is that good. Yes, he is. And I must admit, one of the pleasures of my season so far was commentating on his first Champions League appearance for Manchester City, uh, where the Sevilla fans ended up giving him a standing ovation at the end of the match because he was that good. Uh, And, you know, he's a little... Someone's got to find a way of trying to stop him. I don't know who can do that. I don't know if anyone can do that, but I'm sure we'll find out in the... Bournemouth did it. Well done, Bournemouth. Fantastic. Brilliant. But Sam, Sam, you know what? What you just said... That sums up what I was saying a second ago, because I, I remember when um, Messi would get applause from opposition uh, fans when he was at Barcelona. Zidane would get it when he was playing for Real Madrid from opposition fans. Sometimes, once in a lifetime, a player comes along that's so good, you just have to applaud him and you just have to recognise how good he is. And Haaland is that, that good I think he will rack up ridiculous numbers because it doesn't matter how you play against him. With City, people say, how do you stop Haaland? But if you deploy men to stop him, a Foden will score, a De Bruyne will score, a Silva will score, and then a game opens up and you then have to try and stop them and then he'll find a space to kill you. So he will rack those numbers up and we will be back here again talking about what he can achieve in a game. So uh, he's basically like the Terminator. He, he, you know, he, whatever happens at some stage, he will be back. Um, they, we're all in trouble, aren't we? Because Manchester City are just on this wonderful sort of trajectory of, of producing perfect football. It was quite interesting, actually, after the game, listening to Pep Guardiola suggest <laughs> that there were a few players that weren't very good uh, during that match. They won 6-3. They could have won 9-0. I mean, it was a disappointment that they conceded three goals. In fact, most people are looking at how Man United scored three goals. Anyway, uh, we should probably look at it from a Manchester United perspective as well. It has been a brilliant weekend, and this is how it unfolded on TalkSport. Well, the goal has come in the seventh minute, and it's gone to Manchester City, and it is... Phil Foden, it's beautiful work from City who've started the much brighter. The first half performance was as bad as anything we've seen in recent years. He didn't bring it on the pitch from the first minute on, and I don't know why. Uh, I'm really surprised by that. Mr Erling Haaland has put Manchester City 2-0 up in this derby. There was no belief, there was no commitment. Another goal at the Etihad. I bet you can guess who it is. The delivery from Kevin De Bruyne from the right-hand side is absolutely pinpoint. Erling Haaland, who's on a hat-trick. He could score a hat-trick of hat-tricks at home here at the Etihad and become the first player ever to do that in the Premier League. We just score more. We cannot complain about that, but we can do better. This is getting absolutely ridiculous, Sam. Manchester City 4, Manchester United 0. When you are not good, uh, you get hammered. Today we were not good. This performance is unacceptable. And Erling Haaland has another hat-trick. It's a hat-trick of hat-tricks at the Etihad Stadium in the Premier League for him. The first Premier League player to do that in the top flight. This is the, the most satisfaction as a manager or be part of this group with these players and staff and background staff. So still, 
I still we are doing this, and this is so difficult. And there's Foden, he breaks away, he's clearly onside there. What a ball from Haaland to pick him out, slots it to his left. City 6, Manchester United 1. That scoreline rings a bell, doesn't it? From 2011, why always be with Mario Balotelli? Two hat-tricks. There was no belief. City now a point behind the leaders, Arsenal. United back to the board before the drawing board. Manchester City 6, Manchester United 3. So let's start with Manchester City 6, Manchester United 3. Yeah, Manchester United scored three goals in this game, but it never felt like that. I thought it was a very poor performance right from the very start from Manchester United. And as good as Manchester City were, and we've waxed lyrical about Erling Haaland, Phil Foden was superb. De Bruyne, I mean, he should be illegal, really. He's, he's so he's so incisive with his passing. He creates so many chances. And when you've got players like Foden and Haaland, you're always going to score a lot of goals. But Manchester United, I thought, were really off the pace. They were lacklustre. It was a derby game which they didn't get up for. They didn't get in the faces of Manchester City from the very start, which is what they needed to do. I thought the team selection was wrong. Casemiro should have been in the team. If he's not fit and up to speed, my question is why? Because he's been there for a month now. They've hardly had any games during that period. Uh, he, he, he should be ready to play. Why on earth, or, or who believes that you can go into a Manchester derby against one of the greatest teams that have ever been constructed with a midfield of Scott McTominay, Bruno Fernandes and Christian Eriksen, talented players in their own right, but as a three in midfield, a blend in midfield, that's never going to be able to thwart Gundogan, De Bruyne and Bernardo Silva, Alex Crook. No, absolutely. And uh, it looked a game too big for Malassia as well. Actually, his performance reminded me of Patrice Evra um, in a Manchester derby back in 2006, early in his United reign. He struggled um, in that fixture as well. Dallo gets booked with inside two minutes, sets the tone, really knows that you then can't really go and engage Jack Grealish for the rest of the game. I agree with you on Casemiro. I think Scott McTominay has played really well in the last four games for United, but this was clearly a step up in opposition. I think it was a bit arrogant from Eric Ten Hag to think that he could use the same tactics against a side of this calibre. The word I used at half-time on Twitter, and it's quite an emotive one, I understand that, was cowardly. I thought it was a performance from United that lacked bravery. They panicked in that first half every time they were in possession. Their forward players didn't really want to get on the ball and try and hurt what was a makeshift Manchester City defence. They did that a bit more in the second half. And you say they've ended up scoring three goals, but the damage was done in the first 45. And I think the manager came out afterwards and really backed me um, with my assessment and the word cowardly because he said the players lacked belief. And I think they did lack the minerals uh, for a, a Manchester derby against this City side. And that's a worry going forward. If you're Gareth Southgate watching that game and you look at the performance of Marcus Rashford and Jadon Sancho, two of the biggest culprits for going missing in action, I think you're thinking, do I really want to take these guys to the World Cup? Are they going to turn up and be noticed when we get to the knockout stages? No chance on that performance. Well, he's not really thinking that, is he? He hasn't been thinking that for a year, has he? I mean, that's the whole point. I mean, there's been a lot of debate, and I remember reading a big piece last week about how Marcus Rashford, back in form, should be part of the England setup. No doubt, one of the first names on the squad team sheet uh, for the World Cup. I haven't seen any evidence to suggest that that should be the case. A couple of performances against uh, light opposition at the beginning of the season, not really. Uh, I wouldn't say that he's anywhere near the consistency of Tammy Abraham or Ivan Tony or obviously Harry Kane. Um, I read a brilliant report uh, in the Times this morning in which there is a suggestion that you know sometimes when you're up against the best playmaker in the world, passing to the best goal scorer in the world, and a team which is minutely calibrated to put them both in the perfect positions to do so, you face a level of quality which is simply unanswerable, Darren. Is that one half of the story and the other half that Manchester United just weren't really ready for the battle? I think uh, they weren't ready for the battle. Um, I think there was decision-making in the final third from United that was strange to say the least. There were moments uh, in the first and second half where uh, they could have played players into space and chose the wrong option. Anthony didn't turn up until the second half. Wonderful goal, though, he may have scored. I think that it should have been more faster. Well, it should have been faster and more frenetic. And had it been, then maybe we would still have had a City win. Maybe we would still have had a high score. But at least you wouldn't have been able to say that the scoreline, even the three-goal deficit flattered United because it did I think Crook's right 
I don't like throwing words like cowardly around. I'd rather go with, with what Ten Hag said in terms of belief. They didn't turn up believing they could win. They didn't turn up believing that they could give City a game. And, and to be fair, this was a considerable step up in class for them, for, even from beating Arsenal. And But the truth is, Darren, we didn't believe that they could give... Oh, I did, City. actually. I did. Yeah. So, I did. Yeah, I no one so. did. There's not anybody who sort of sat there and thought they could give them a game. Not really. We sat on this pod on Thursday and we all said, you know, we can say nice things about Manchester United and their ability to counter-attack, but ultimately it's going to end with Erling Haaland scoring and a, and a pretty good Manchester City win. The only person who actually said that that wasn't going to be the case was Crook, but he changed his mind from the first paragraph to the last paragraph. So, you know, we, you know, they are a team that isn't quite good enough to do the things that they want to do just yet. And they're playing against a team which, as James Gerbrandt says in the Times earlier uh, on Monday morning, is like a seven-year laboratory experiment to try and find perfection in football. But, but Sam, the, 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 there's a big difference between saying, I think City will win, as I did, and I've not really deviated from that, and I think City will win, but United will give a better account of themselves than they have done in the last two Manchester derbies, which is what I said. And that's why I'm disappointing. Not because City have won. I'm not surprised by that. I've said all along, I think City will win. I think Haaland will score. You know what I think of Haaland. But I did think that United would turn up to the party and they didn't. Yeah, I'm with Darren. Obviously, we all expected Manchester City to win, but there is a way to lose football match. And I've said that before when it comes to United on this podcast. And that first half performance wasn't the way to lose a Manchester derby. They made it too easy for Manchester City, showed them too much respect. And I do wonder, moving forward now, if uh, character-wise, Eric Ten Hag has made a decision on one or two of those starting players. I expect Casemiro to start the next game. And actually, it's a big game on TalkSport next Sunday against Everton because we'll know more about the spirit of these Manchester United players with how they react to this defeat. Okay, well, that was the Manchester derby. Quite a seismic victory for Manchester City. What about the North London derby? I was there on Saturday lunchtime and uh, I thought Arsenal were absolutely brilliant. I spoke to Mikel Arteta afterwards and the question I asked him, Darren, was what was more impressive? The fact that you've turned up and you've won a big game against a local rival, but also a rival for the top four or the manner in which you did it? And he said, without doubt, the manner in which we did it because they suffered a setback midway through the first half. They were completely the dominant force in the game, suffered a setback, but then managed to deal with that. And at times gone by, Arsenal would wilt under that sort of little bit of pressure, but they recalibrated, went again and took the game away from what was a very passive Tottenham Hotspur. Yeah, I'd agree with all of that. I think it was a statement of victory. It was a victory that basically said, OK, you took our Champions League place, but we've come back. We're stronger. We've got winners in the side now. We've got depth in the side now. We play a better brand of football. And most importantly, we have the character uh, that we were just discussing that United lack, belief. And I think they are a side that believes in each other. They've healed from the disappointment from last season and they're really driven. They're using that to motivate them. And you have to say, you know how big, how much admiration I have for Conte. But I think as far as Arteta is concerned, his Arsenal this season would appear to be further forward than Spurs are under Conte. Yeah, I think they've done brilliantly in the way they've sort of managed to not only start the season in great form, but maintain that and look at if they're in perfect shape. During matches, they look dominant. They hold the team that they're playing against the opponents in opposition territory. They flex their, they flex their formation to this 4-1 formation with Thomas Partey screening the back four. He was brilliant at that. Xhaka goes forward. You've got Erdegaard playing as a number 10. You've got Zinchenko wandering into midfield to make up the numbers. You've got Martinelli spraying the play on the left-hand side. Saka, a threat on the right. And, and then you've got Gabriel Jesus, who's been absolutely terrific. And if he doesn't score goals, which he has done, he occupies defenders, causes them real grief. I think he's absolutely brilliant. What did you make of the sending off, Alex? Emerson Royale. Yeah, I think it was a red card. Um, I know there's been a little bit of debate. I thought it was a, a dangerous tackle. I thought it was quite a brainless tackle, to be honest. And um, I think if we're talking about Tottenham, in terms of getting closer to Manchester City, as a lot of people were at the start of the season, 
with the greatest will in the world, they're not going to do that with Emerson Royal as their first choice right back. He's simply not good enough and uh, lost his head in a big game situation. I was disappointed by Spurs and I know that Darren Lewis is chief cheerleader in the Antonio Conte fan club. I actually think if Jose Mourinho had sent out Tottenham to play in such a defensive manner in a North London derby, he would have got hammered for that. I I thought it was a really negative game plan for Antonio Conte. One team tried to win the game, one team tried to stay in it and ultimately football was the winner. That's what uh, Perry Grove says during commentary on Saturday. You know, one team is trying to survive, the other team is trying to win the match. And the truth is, is that Antonio Conte has been setting Tottenham up like that all season. There's no way that we should be surprised by the fact they were so passive and pragmatic in that North London derby. That's how he did it against Marseille. That's how he did it against Sporting. That's how he did it against Wolves and against Southampton. Ultimately, that is how his Tottenham Hotspur play. They are quite dull to watch. If you've watched any Tottenham games this season, you've it's very rare that you've had a thriller minute bit of action. In fact, the last half hour against Leicester City was probably the best in terms of entertainment value. But if you watch the whole 90 minutes of that match, they won it 6-2. But Leicester, arguably, for large parts of the match, were the better team, remarkably. Um, there's certainly no way that you could suggest that Tottenham were the better team in this game. Um, Harry Kane, though, did score a seventh top division penalty against Arsenal. The joint by uh, one player against a specific team since Frank Hudspeth hit eight penalties against Sheffield United between 1913 and 1926 for Newcastle United. That's pretty... Darren was there. That's pretty impressive. Um, (laughs) Did he put them to the right or the left of the goalkeeper, Darren? Yeah. Uh, Just very quickly. Just very, very quickly. (laughs) Um, I wouldn't get too carried away with with how bad Spurs were. I remember when the Conte won the league with Chelsea, started that particular season with a 4-2-4 formation. Went to Arsenal, got ripped apart 3-0 and went away, changed the system. At half-time in that game. 3-4-3. No, 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 no. At half-time, but obviously after that match, stuck with 3-4-3. And I remember him absolutely demolishing the league. Uh, They didn't lose a game afterwards. They won the league, turning handsprings. And it it said to me that he's a guy who, who knows how... He's a pragmatist. And if it is the case that he needs to go away and work on a different system, he'll do that. I don't think this is the end of Spurs. I don't want to sit here and say, because of that, Spurs won't challenge for the title and Arsenal will. I think Spurs will be back because this is the guy, you look at his track record, he knows how to react to events. And he does, even though some people might not think he does, he does have the personnel. Well, I I understand your comparison to that season. And I think there was a lot of talk about... um, 2016-17 when they were losing the game on Saturday one of the things I will say though is that when he went into Chelsea he sort of almost exceeded a little bit of control to the players and said yeah okay you like playing in a 4-3-2-1 whatever it was at the time you like playing with a back four I want to play with a back three but ultimately you've been successful doing this so we'll stick with this and then we'll move forward if we have a problem they had a problem he then changed it at half time in that game when they were 3-0 down and went right now it's my way they went on a run of 13 games um, without defeat after, I think, 13 wins in a row, actually, after that, and then won the league, as you say. But that was a team that he was changing. He's been at Tottenham for a year now. That was six weeks, seven weeks into a season. You know, he he designed this system. He's put these players into this formation. It's not them doing it, and he's not going to come up with a, a, a completely different way of playing. He decided to set them up like that. And I think that is an indictment, actually, as to the the way that they've approached this game and approached this season. When I spoke to him afterwards, he said, actually, my game plan worked and I would have won the game had the final ball in the first half been better. I'm not sure that was the case. I think think he's looking through rose-tinted spectacles there, Crook. I agree. I think Arsenal were were the dominant force right from the off. He also suggested, uh, I think in one interview, that the sending off had a bearing on the outcome. I don't think it did. I think Arsenal would have won the game anyway. And, you know, we're seven, eight games into the season now. We're trying to work out what Arsenal are. Are they the the, the most serious contenders for the title apart from Manchester City? Are they certainties for the top four? It certainly looks that way at this moment in time. And and you look at the, the summer transfer windows they had. Both clubs spent a lot of money, but we had a call on the boot room. We summed it up quite well, actually. Tottenham, I think, spent money on strengthening the squad. Arsenal spent money on improving their first eleven, And I think 
the signings of Jesus and Zinchenko that you mentioned, I think will prove to be two of the most important signings of the season. Darren can shake his head all he likes, but apart from Richarlison, how many of the players that Tottenham signed in the summer have made any real impact? And has anyone seen Jed Spence, by the way? In the dressing, in the dressing room, you speak to any of the Arsenal players, right? And they will tell you that the mentality that has been brought to the club by Zinchenko, by Gabriel Jesus, has elevated their expectations because these two guys are proper winners, they know how to win, and they're experienced at doing so, and they demand that everybody else does that around them as well. So uh, it might be sort of like, you know what Crook's like, he he likes to go to the top end of a, of a statement and make the biggest and boldest claim possible. It may not be transformative, but they've had a huge, huge impact on the rest of the players that were in that group while strengthening the starting eleven, I actually think underrated. No one's really talking about it because he's been there sort of on the fringes for a while. But William Saliba coming into the team has made a huge, huge difference to Arsenal because he is a ball-playing central defender. He's absolutely huge. He reads danger. He is very, very good. And he makes you happy. Why, why does he make you happy? Come on, you must have heard the song. The Saliba the, the tequila, tequila song. song. Yeah, 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 yeah. But come on, we've heard it. About, it doesn't make me happy that song because I've heard it about 150 times. Oh, I think he's good. I think he's good. One after it's got no lyrics in it. <laughs> um, right, okay. Let's uh, move on to Chelsea because obviously, if, if all these teams are going to finish in the top four, then Chelsea and Liverpool are obviously fighting to do so as well. We'll get to Liverpool in just a second. But Conor Gallagher came back to Selhurst Park at the weekend to horn Crystal Palace. Um, I mean, there's a lot of talk about the Thiago Silva sending off and people suggesting that he was lucky to stay on the pitch and that might have been a pivotal moment in the game. What utter, utter rubbish. There is absolutely no way that a referee or a VAR is going to send somebody off for the denial of a goal-scoring opportunity 16, 17 yards into his own half with 30, 40 yards to run into the the law itself says that the next action has to be almost a certain goal. There's absolutely no way that that next action is going to be a certain goal. It's far too far away. There's a covering defender. It's ne- There's no referee anywhere that is going to give that as a denial of a goal-scoring opportunity. And the speculation that they might, I think, was absolutely ludicrous. I agree. Uh, I can see Darren is is virtually eating his hand as you're speaking, so clearly he's got a counter-opinion. But no way was that a denial of a goal-scoring opportunity. So far out wide, there's so much distance to cover uh, between the, the, the free kick, the infringement and the goal. You've got a covering defender in Ben Chilwell and Ayu scores one goal every 15 games. So let's take that <laughs> into account players. as well. <laughs> Yeah, unless it's in front of the goal and there's one, literally one yard between him and an open goal, it's not a denial of a goal-scoring opportunity. I completely disagree. Listen, you cannot judge the rule. You cannot judge the law on the frequency with which a player scores. Forget that. I'm judging it on the distance to the goal. Well, I know, but the fact is that the distance between... I don't think he's as far out as you're making out. He is. I think that... And the fact is, right, that what you've just said there... And, and it's important to point out, it's your interpretation of the law. And very, very often, the law is about interpretation. And most people watching that will see that what Thiago Silva did there, he cheated. He handled the ball so that Ayu couldn't get away. And had Ayu got away, he would almost certainly have had an opportunity to score. That's what the law is. No, it the isn't. The denial of a goal-scoring opportunity. It's literally in the words, the denial of a goal-scoring opportunity. But if you speak if you if you speak if you speak to the PGMOL and you discuss and you discuss the the, the the law, I've had the briefings prior to the start of the season. I know that the way they referee the games, the way they've been told to referee the games, that if denial of a goal-scoring opportunity means that the next action has to lead to a goal. The actual referees have already decided before the start of the season, before the start of last season, and before that, that this is how they're going to interpret the law. So therefore, I'm not putting a spin on it. That is how they referee the games. Therefore, they were never, ever going to send him off. You might disagree with it, but that's not how they referee the games. That's a fact. 
But listen, in, in terms of the game, again, I think it was uh, a pretty uninspiring performance from Chelsea. I think Crystal Palace felt really hard done by to lose the game. Um, I, I spoke to one of the coaching staff on Sunday and I think the feeling was anybody but Conor Gallagher. They had a sense of foreboding when he came off the bench. But Palace deserved the point and it, it's still not fluent from Chelsea, is it? It's still not quite gelling at this moment in time. Uh, not fluent, a bit slow at times. Raheem Sterling's got to learn when to pass, when to shoot. And when he does shoot, he's got to finish if he's going to do that. Um, he gets a lot of chances, doesn't score enough goals. Aubameyang's finish was brilliant, really, to be honest with you, the way he twisted and smashed the ball into the goal. Um, Gallagher scored a brilliant goal coming off the bench. Really important that he gets a chance, I think. You know, everyone tells me he's not very good, but I actually think given the opportunity to grow into this Chelsea team, he'll be coached by Graham Potter. I think there's a, every chance that he can develop into a, a useful player for Chelsea. I don't think you need to be a world beater to get into a squad like Chelsea's every, you know, a match day squad for Chelsea every week. But you need to be a good, solid citizen who can contribute when necessary. And ultimately, you know, you can't have a, a whole squad of Phil Foden's and Mason Mounts you need other players to to help with a blend and Gallagher's got a role in this squad I think going forward uh, and he scored a brilliant goal it was a really really good goal and he's been a good player at Chelsea in the youth ranks and coming through I remember giving him a young player of the year award many years ago uh, when he was still a teenager so uh, he's very well thought of there and I hope that they give him the opportunity and I think one of the things about Graham Potter being there is that there might be some more Chelsea youngsters that get an opportunity. They have got some of the best youngsters in the country. Uh, Steve Parrish uh, agrees with Darren. He, he he sent a tweet out on Saturday. Honestly, what is the point of VAR? We chop and change every week what it does and what it thinks. VAR must surely think that's a red, but not a clear error, even if it's not a dog so. You know, it's got the, lango, the, the lingo, right? Um, which it is, which it isn't. Uh, he handles it twice deliberately. Uh, one we play on, so two yellows. Uh, no, well, he didn't handball it twice deliberately. He fell over once and then handballed it deliberately, so that's not true either. But anyway, um, I'm not convinced it was a red card. Darren, you know, he likes to play a little bit of antagonist, so he does. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The Premier League All Access Podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. There's a lot more to those 90 minutes than what goes down on the pitch. With the latest odds, form guides and expert opinions, you'll know the score with Ladbrokes. Odds update on Talk Sport with Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at ladbrokes.com, 18+, begambleaware.org, T's and C's apply. 192nd North London derby, where the winner will not only have the most currency in North London, but will also be the Premier League's market leader. Martinelli's got the ball on the edge of the box once again. He's laid it off to Xhaka. Xhaka to finish it. Xhaka does finish it. It's Arsenal 3, Tottenham 1. Pulisic 
Into the area, left-hand side, finds Conor Gallagher on his right foot. Oh, he would have to be Conor Gallagher to win it for Chelsea against the club where he was on though last year. He doesn't celebrate. That's no great surprise, but the Chelsea fans are celebrating. You felt there might be another goal. It has come. It's Liverpool 3, Brighton 3. It's Leander Trossard who's got it and hits his third of the game, his first hat-trick for four years. Newcastle cruising at the cottage, 10-man Fulham nil, Newcastle four. Newcastle look like they can score every time they go forward. Southampton won Everton two, six minutes ago when Saints scored. You said Frank Lampard's got work to do. He's done the work and so have his team. A win of three draws for Gary O'Neill. Brentford uh, will be disappointed on the balance of play not to win the game. Finishes here, Bournemouth nil, Brentford nil. It's another goal for West Ham. It's Jared Bowen this time, eight minutes into the second half. Procession in the end for David Moyes' side who made it look so easy against the hapless Wolves here at the London Stadium. West Ham 2, Wolves 0. Liverpool 3, Brighton 3. No doubt the big story of Saturday. And we've spoken a lot about how much we've got great respect for Brighton. And we must pay tribute to the work that Roberto De Zerbi has done. And apparently he's so passionate. He trains with the team. He gets involved every single day. He doesn't want to rip up what Graham Potter's done. And he just wants to sprinkle his ideas on top. And I like that. I think that, you know, you don't often take over a team that's in a really good vein of form. He's been fortunate enough to do that. And good luck to him. Because he came across brilliantly, I thought, in the interviews afterwards and his team played really well and they always play really well and I'm I'm so impressed with them but Liverpool the complete opposite not impressed at all and I am concerned about their run which has seen them concede first in nine of the last 11 Premier League matches and it isn't just Trent Alexander-Arnold Trent Alexander-Arnold is a brilliant player. There is no doubt about that, but he is suffering. He's suffering severely from a bout of low confidence. He was dropped by Gareth Southgate from the matchday squad against Germany, and Southgate took a lot of criticism, including on this podcast, for doing that. But he was right, because this lad is not playing well. I wonder whether the extreme attention that he gets, and he does get so much attention because he's got so much brilliance and his numbers are wonderful going forward. His assist record is absolutely terrific. That when he does something amazing, it's blown up as you know the best thing that's ever happened in the world. Every magic moment, every mistake poured over by the media, by the Liverpool fans who adore him and rightly so, but by rival fans too, who are willing to queue up and wait to pour scorn over a a player who was tagged by Jurgen Klopp as the best right-back in the world. He is not the only one who is suffering in that Liverpool system. There's a lot of people that are not quite on their game. But all the goals over the weekend came down his side. And every single one of those three goals, there is a moment where you think, Trent, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? I wonder if the form of Virgil van Dijk has, has had a real impact as well. And, and actually, when van Dijk was at the peak of his powers, which clearly he's not at the moment, did he cover for a lot of Trent Alexander-Arnold's defensive deficiencies? Because you're right, there are big problems in that Liverpool rear guard. I think they've, lost, they've missed Andrew Robertson on the left-hand side as well. And they look like a team who are vulnerable every time the opposition comes forward. And that hasn't been the case for Jurgen Klopp and his mentality monsters in the past. I think Salah is still floundering as well, nowhere near his best. And I wonder, again, you talk about relationships in football and from the outside looking in, we all thought that maybe Sadio Mane and Mo Salah weren't the best of friends on or off the pitch. But I think Mane was a really important foil for Salah and clearly he's missed him this season. And it could get worse before it gets better for Liverpool. They've got a big double header in the Champions League against Rangers. They should win that, but obviously you've got to take into account the Ibrox atmosphere in the case of the second game. And the next two Premier League games, I think I'm right in saying, are Arsenal away and then Manchester City. You can't really make a case for Liverpool turning up and winning either of those two fixtures at this moment in time. Not on form. And so it begins. 192nd North London derby. Jacker to finish it. Jacker does finish it in some style. Listen to that noise. Listen to that. That is the sound of North London turning red. It's finished. Arsenal three. Tottenham one. Pulisic 
Into the area, left-hand side, finds Conor Gallagher on his right foot. Oh, he would have to be Conor Gallagher to win it for Chelsea. Graham Potter in his first Premier League game in charge, set for the three points. Palace one, Chelsea two. An absolutely sensational match of football and it's finished all square. Liverpool three, Brighton three. And Newcastle cruising towards their first Premier League win since the opening weekend. Almiron with a stunning finish. Southampton fans were absolutely ecstatic five minutes ago. They're not quite so happy now. Southampton won Everton two. Jared Bowen this time, eight minutes into the second half, they leave Wolves by two goals to nil. You do have to wonder what this means for Bruno Lage. And Erling Haaland has another hat-trick. It's a hat-trick of hat-tricks at the Etihad Stadium in the Premier League for him, the first Premier League player to do that in the top flight. Embarrassment for their red rivals. Haaland and Foden with hat-tricks. Manchester City 6, Manchester United 3. Um, okay, we, we have got six ga- or a few games to do, but we'll rattle through them because they're none, none as important as the one we've already talked about so far. Fulham against Newcastle finished 4-1 to Newcastle. Newcastle brilliant in the game. Almiron's goal, first one was absolutely terrific. Sending off for Shalabar, was it? It was very early in the game, I thought. No, it was a bad tackle. Definite red card. Yeah. I thought it was a bit of a yellowy orangey, that one. I didn't, I, I was a bit sort of like, is it as bad as it looks? I'm not entirely sure. But, you know, I thought it ruined the game as a spectacle, so I think maybe that's probably why. Um, the biggest shock of the week is that West Ham and Wolves played in a match where there were more than one goal. Um, 2-0 to West Ham United and timely uh, for um, good old David Moyes because he needed that victory but not so... T- I mean, the, the goal, by the way, Skamaka's technique to, to rifle the ball in from the edge of the penalty area after it popped out from Bowen coming in from the right. Excellent, I thought. But um, obviously, it's had a wide-ranging um, impact in the fact that Bruno Large has been given his marching orders, Crook. What's happened there? And uh, who are they going to get in? Well, we did call it, didn't we? Uh, when we recorded the podcast at the end of last week, the, the suggestion in some quarters that was that David Moyes was the manager under pressure. Uh, I'd been told that Really, Bruno Large was on his last legs at Wolves. And in fact, I was told he had one game uh, prior to the international break to save his job. That one game turned out to be West Ham and it was a game too far. I think this is a change they've been contemplating for some time, even back to the end of last season when Wolves couldn't win a game. In fact, I remember covering a match at Stamford Bridge <clears throat> when they were 2-0 down against Chelsea. Came back, Connor Cody, ironically, scored a late equaliser to save a point and probably save Bruno Large his job. And I do think the decision to dispense with Connor Cody is one that has come back to haunt Bruno Large. I think he was a big character in the dressing room. I think that upset a lot of people. There have been problems behind the scenes for a while now. Players have not really bought into his training techniques. They found some of his sessions a bit dull. So I think it was inevitable. In terms of replacement, just look through George Mendes's list of clients and I'm sure the name will be somewhere on that. They've been linked with uh, Martins, former Olympiacos manager, who I know has been on their list before. Uh, and the other interesting one is uh, Le Petigui at Sevilla, who's under a bit of pressure, former Spain coach. And I think he would be of interest as well. So uh, I think there will be a Mendes connection with their next manager. Is that the right way to go or should they possibly consider a different path? I guess the owners would say that that link with Mendes to this point has served them pretty well. Um, Lepetegui, good at uh, building a strong defence, which might be good for um, Wolverhampton Wanderers because he was at Sevilla last year, best defence in La Liga. Uh, Pedro Martins did well and won a couple of championships uh, in Greece and then lost a Champions League qualifier to Maccabi Haifa and was fired by Evangelos Malinakis, the Olympiakos and Nottingham Forest owner. So, uh, you know, the two, two high quality man- or two good quality managers, I think, who could come into the Premier League. Um, Southampton 1, Everton 2. The Everton revival goes on. Seven games unbeaten now for the Super Toffees. Darren, aren't they doing a great job? Frank Lambert's doing a brilliant job, isn't he? He's doing a fine job and he's underlining what I've been saying at the start of the season. I've never been in any doubt about the fact that they'll be okay this season because of the recruitment at the football club. They bought well in the summer. Tarkovsky came on a free... Connor Cody came in, two leaders, two great defenders, uh, great, relatively speaking, you know, they're, they're fine defenders. Um, Onana, West Ham fans, missed out on him and he's turned out, don't do that joke, uh, Crook, um, he's turned out to be a good player uh, for them in midfield, in the engine room. And Idrissa Gay coming back to the football club as well. And bringing in um, Dwight McNeil 
up front. He's not prolific, but he does put in a shift. He gives them a focal point. And they're scoring goals. Uh, and the confidence is coming back to the side. And what's quite interesting is that they spent all that money on all those players and, you know, try to roll with the big dogs. But it's just getting back to basics and doing the simple things that has got them back. Solidity, characters, legs. That has massively helped um, that Everton team. I mean, obviously, Darren has, has admitted there that he never thought that there would be a problem for Everton. Crook has already changed his mind and said that uh, he was wrong about Everton at the start of the season. Um, were you wrong about Southampton? They are going to be all right, you said. Mm, I think they will, because I think they're playing well. I think even if you look at the game uh, against Everton, they create an, a number of chances. Jordan Pickford, uh, back in goal for Everton, had an excellent game. So I'd be more concerned if they weren't creating chances. And actually, my narrative has been fairly solid on this. I said they've signed a lot of young players. There will be bumps in the road. Young players will make mistakes. But ultimately, I have belief in the project. I think the board still have belief in Ralph Hasenhutl, despite some suggestions to the contrary. So I think Ralph is safe for now. But listen, I'm not naive enough to think that if results don't improve, then they won't consider a change. But at the moment, I think because the owners who were there in force on Saturday can see that Southampton are playing well, maybe without getting the wins that they deserve, they're not overly concerned. Having said that, this is a really strong Premier League and it's difficult to say with any great certainty who the three teams that are going down will be because it's so competitive, not just at the top of the table, but at the bottom as well. Yeah, and it's a very important period for Ralph Harsenhutl, I think, because he's lost four of the last five games. He's going to lose the next one. They're playing Manchester City away from home. They've got West Ham at home after that. Then Bournemouth away, which is going to be a huge game on a Wednesday night. And then Southampton play Arsenal and Crystal Palace before we get into November. If at that juncture, the run that they're currently on continues, I can foresee a bit of an issue here coming down the track for Southampton. I agree. I think that those games that you mentioned, particularly the West Ham and Bournemouth ones, are massive. And I guess the objective for any team going to the Etihad, especially one of the lower ranking sides, is just don't get Haaland. Not not get nine. Don't don't let them get nine, whatever you do. I suppose. Could he don't let him get a double hat-trick. Because Darren Ambrose has made a bold prediction that Erling Haaland, uh, Haaland this season will get a double hat-trick. Could, could, could they... Could, could... Ralph Harsenhut will survive another 9-0. <laughs> now, that might be a stretch too far. As we still got to, to talk about Bournemouth against uh, Brentford. Uh, Gary O'Neill, furious that he thinks he should have had two penalties in the game. Um, you were at this game. Yeah, it was a dreadful spectacle, <laughs> apart from the two penalty incidents. Ivan Tony uh, really had an off day, got yellow carded for booting the ball into the crowd out of frustration. Um, in the first half so clearly his England snub has had an impact I thought the first one was a penalty Zamora going down under a challenge from Christopher Iyer I thought it was a clumsy tackle didn't get enough of the ball for me I was surprised when the, the young referee Thomas Bramwell was summoned to the VAR monitor that he stuck to his on-field decision I understand why he's got praise for that but I also understand why Bournemouth feel hard done by I know you think the second one the handball was more of a clear penalty I didn't because it there was no deliberate act there it bounced off his foot as he tried to make a clearance hit his outstretched arm I think the referee got that one right although he couldn't wait to blow he couldn't wait to blow the full time um, whistle um, 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 what, what's that got to do with anything Crook sorry why, why have you used the words deliberate act I'm sorry that was removed from the law in the summer I don't understand why you've used that yeah but I think it. it listen okay whatever you think of the laws it would have been harsh it would have been harsh to give I, I, I think it would have been harsh but do you know what going back to Darren's point about the need for consistency right one of the things that really irritates me about the PGMOL is that they have the guidance that they do, which is different to that of Europe, right? So, for example, if a ball hits the uh, thigh of a defender and then hits up and pops up an outstretched arm, it's not going to be a penalty in the Premier League. But in the Europa League, Lissandro Martinez does that against Real Sociedad, and it's a penalty. Our clubs play in Europe. All of our clubs have an ambition to play in Europe. So let's referee the game the same way they do in Europe, because ultimately that's where you're going to end up trying to be so don't la add in an extra layer of interpretation around the handball law that isn't there ultimately if your arm is outstretched 
and it's away from your body and the ball hits it, you are responsible for having your arm there. That is the law. Whether you agree with it or not is a different matter. But the Matthias Jensen had his arm outstretched and he the ball hit the floor, hit nicked off his leg and hit the underside. By the letter of the law, it is a penalty. But Thomas Bramwell decided the best thing to do was to blow the whistle and just hope get off the best. pitch as quickly as possible. It's the end of the game. Let's just go. Let's just let's just go. Let's not do this again. I don't want to. I don't. Wanna, I don't want to do it again. Uh, but anyway, another point for Gary O'Neill. Has he lost a game yet, Gary O'Neill? No, six points from uh, four games. Two clean sheets after inheriting a team that lost nine nil. He's doing well. He's doing well. Not bad. Not bad at all, Gaza. Well done, fella. Um, Darren, thank you very much for the sparring match today. That's been good fun. You've forgotten Leeds near Aston Villa, Neil. No, I haven't. Have we done that? No, I'm just not doing it. It was rubbish. It was absolutely <laughs> terrible. If you watch it, it was awful. It was awful. It was a waste of two hours. I'm not wasting any more minutes on it. It was it was outrageously <laughs> bad. Are Aston Villa wasting their time with Steven Gerrard? That's a question maybe for next week's pod. Um, okay, that's uh, that's it from us. Darren, thank you very much. Enjoyed that. Um, Alex, see you uh, on Thursday for the uh, preview pod ahead of uh, another weekend of great action on TalkSport. We've got a Sunday night game next Sunday. Uh, in between time, loads of Champions League football and Europa League football on TalkSport, including Manchester United's game on Thursday night. But Crookie is doing that on TalkSport too. I'll be doing Chelsea AC Milan on Wednesday night as well as Live Football Tuesday night. We've got it all on Talk Sport, as you would expect. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. The latest odds, we set them. Form guides, we've got them. Expert opinions, we share them. The best fans in the world deserve the best. Be match day ready before the whistle blows with Labrooks. Odds updates on Talk Sport with Labrooks. Are you in? Let's go. Play at labrooks.com, 18 plus, be gambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 